Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me for our post-election wrap-up is Nabila Islam. Nabila, how are you? I'm great. I'm just hooked to the television trying to see uh, what these results are going to be. I know. I feel like I've been like doom scrolling and attached to my TV for the last two days. <laughs> um, also joining us today is Josh White. Josh, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me back. So on today's episode, we are going to recap the results that are still pouring in from the 2020 election. Um, we are just to give you the timestamp of where we are, because this will undoubtedly, the exact numbers will undoubtedly change by the time you hear it. But it is eight o'clock on Thursday evening, when we are recording this podcast, um, to just give you a sense of the top line numbers. Nationally, Joe Biden is on the verge of winning this election. He at this point needs to win two more states among those that are still yet to be called. Um, he needs to win two of the following group, Alaska, Arizona, Georgia, North Carolina, Nevada, or Pennsylvania. Um, he is leading in Arizona and Nevada. Those seem like the potentially the safest states for him. Um, in fact, some of the news organizations have actually already called Arizona for Biden. Um, Biden also is gaining ground and and getting closer to taking the lead as votes come in in Georgia and Pennsylvania. Um, So I think for this discussion, it it seems likely that Biden is going to be the next president of the United States. Some top lines on the Georgia races. Uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock and Kelly Leffler, they are headed to a runoff in that Senate race. And it seems very likely at this point that, that David Perdue and John Ossoff are also going to go to a runoff in that race. Um, otherwise, Democrats nationally had a relatively disappointing showing in the U.S. Senate. But what that means, what that sets up, is that these two Georgia runoffs are going to be for control of the U.S. Senate if Democrats can manage to flip them both in runoffs in January. So congratulations, Georgia. You're welcome. You're the center of the political universe again for two more months. Uh, Top lines on the congressional races. Uh, Lucy McBath held her seat pretty easily over Karen Handel and Carolyn Bordeaux flipped the seventh district seat narrowly over Rich McCormick. Going further down the ballot, uh, Democrats most notably were making a run at the state house trying to flip that majority uh, into their hands away from Republicans. Um, That seemed to be a promising effort heading into the election, but ultimately it was a disappointing result for Democrats. At this point, as we're recording, they have flipped three seats from Republicans to Democrats, but uh, House Minority Leader Bob Trammell lost his bid for re-election, so they have netted two Democratic seats in the state house. Um, And I think at this point, they've only netted one Democratic seat in the state Senate. So a lot of number there's a lot of numbers there, guys. Um, Let's just get your initial reactions, your initial takeaways. As we sit here on on Thursday evening, Nabila, what did you think about how these results shook out? Well, I always knew that we had a strong possibility in flipping blue, and I knew that would be a a close election, and we're seeing that played out right now. Uh, 3,000 votes is really close, though, Um, and we'll we'll continue to see that narrow as the evening goes. Um, As for for the House state House elections, I was expecting some more gains there. Um, I was really hoping to see a lot more than just, uh, what, two seats that we were able to flip. Uh, and, you know, I expected, you know, Lucy to win her race and, 
Uh, Carolyn uh, took the seventh, uh, thought it would be a larger margin than I saw, but you know, a win is a win. And, uh, and then when it comes to these U.S. Senate elections, uh, you know, I certainly thought that Warnock, of course, would get into a runoff, but um, I did not, I was hoping to see John Ossoff either, you know, get over 50%, but now we're, we're going to be the center of the universe, it looks like, again, uh, with two U.S. Senate seats up for grabs. And uh, I just tweeted out that uh, Georgia was going to save the Senate. And so <laughs> um, it's going to be a lot of uh, electoral activity in the next, what, two months where I think, you know, I thought some of these commercials would end, but we're going to just continue to see a barrage of uh, paid communications towards uh, folks in Georgia. Josh, we're going to dive into some of these races individually here, but any any top line thoughts from you to get us started? Well, I'll tell you, um, you know, I, as, as you know, Bob Trammell was one of my clients and also a really close personal friend. And that loss was a, a, a major blow. And I got to tell you, I was really down the dumps uh, late Tuesday night, all day Wednesday. But one thing that, that I, I did read that made me feel a little bit better is that basically the same thing that happened here in Georgia happened across the across the country, state legislatures. In fact, um, this was the first time since 1946 that so few chambers switched hands. Um, Florida lost five of their flip seats from 2018. Um, we didn't take the, take the House or anything like that in Texas and a lot of states that were being targeted and real money was being spent on targeting those. And the fact that we actually p- were able to still pick up the three seats while we did lose lose Bob, that was that's, that's really you know really sad. But we did pick up a, a number of seats, and we didn't lose a single flip seat from 2018. And I think that that's something that we can really be happy about because those. And if you look at the margins on those races, they almost all of them greatly improved upon their rate their 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 percentages from 2018, which I think makes it look good for our future there. Let's actually start with the state legislature and the state house in particular. We can go from from disappointing to more heartening for Democrats in the state. Um, I think it's there's no other way to put it except the fact that this was a really disappointing result for Democrats. Um, this was a hugely consequential election for Democrats in the legislature, given that if they could win a majority in one of the chambers. I mean, it was unlikely they'd win in both, but if they could win in one, they would at least have a hand in drawing legislative districts after the next census. Um, That also has implications in drawing districts for the congressional seats that um, now two Democrats hold in the metro Atlanta area. Josh, this, it seemed like a good political environment for Democrats this cycle. And this is one place where that the the good political environment for Democrats generally just didn't seem to amount to anything. Do you have any insight as to why legislative candidates in the state were not as competitive as, you know, the the two congressional candidates in the suburbs or or the close races we're seeing statewide? Well, I've got a, I've got a couple theories uh, that we can talk about, but one being, you know, is I think that there are going to be a we're going to find and this is something we won't know for a few cycles or a few years how this all shakes out. But I think there were a lot of folks who were brought into the political process by by the by the president, um, and they are folks who wouldn't be wouldn't come out to vote for Romney or someone like that, but will come out to vote for for a racist person who speaks their own language and, and and whether or not they stick into the electorate is something that we're going to see, you know, is this, is this past two elections that, you know, as part of a habit or not. 
Um, I think that's what we're going to see a little bit here. And I don't know if that's true or not. We'll see what we'll, we'll see how that shakes out. My, my second theory on this a little bit is like, I keep on getting friends like how in the heck could Biden, this is, you know, yesterday, last night and you know earlier today, how in the heck could Biden be even in contention for Georgia and we not pick up any seats or we pick up so few seats, right? And that's the question I keep getting asked. And honestly, it has a lot to do with the map that we have now. You've got a, a large number of districts in the south of the state that are going have way few two voters there and few few citizens there and once here in the, the metro area where there's a whole lot more um and that's just because of the, the the changing population and demographics of the state how that's all moved around and what you're gonna have to find and i know that you you set this up with a little bit of doom and gloom of like oh gosh we, we're missing out on our opportunity to draw the maps Yes, we are. But there's something I'll remind you of. And, and, and as I'm, I think I'm the oldest person here, remember this a little bit, but back, you know, reality is that the state should have flipped to Republican control in 1998. You know, the fact that Barnes won that election, he wasn't really supposed to win that. It was supposed to go the other way. And it really had to do with the fact that Republicans had a bad candidate and, and Barnes did a pretty good job and a few other things that happened along the way that gave him the advantage there. Same year that Sonny Purdue flipped, the same year we lost the... The education, um, uh, whether I had superintendent of education went to Linda Shrenko was 98, right? So that was like kind of the beginning of it. And that was it. We've been electing Republicans on a statewide for federal offices for a while, right? And, and Clinton was like the last person who wasn't doing that. So come 2000, the Democrats drew our map. And because of the way the state was changing at that time, we had to dilute as many districts as we could to keep our majority and still keep. Um, still have keep a majority and still still win the republicans are going to have to do the same thing i mean they're going to have to divvy up the state and like it's not as easy as some folks think it is i mean you're going to have districts in south georgia that almost double in, in geographic size in terms of what they take up in the state and you're going to have a lot more folks in there so the republicans are going to have a problem like are they going to take pieces of Fulton to the cab and the, the outer suburbs and try to draw outwards or how are they going to make it work? It's going to be a lot harder than we might think. And then secondly, on top of that, you know, we're like, well, like, oh, they could draw a map that can get them through for a couple of years and draw a new map, right? Like they've done that in the past with re mid-century redistricting. I think this election here is with Stacey Abrams' success uh, in 2018 and only coming up 50,000 votes short. Biden, I think, is going to be taking the state. I made that prediction right here. And, and, and what's going forward, I think that Stacey running again, which we all, I think, assume that she's going to do. And that's what I've, you know, I'm reading in the, the tea leaves there. Um, if we have a Democrat governor, they can't redistrict again. She's going to have a veto pen. So I think that that in that way, we're not necessarily drawn into the wilderness as bad as we tried to hype up to help build up support for our district races there, you know, but, and, but that's only going to happen if the Democrats take advantage of those opportunities and do a lot better job of, of, of recruiting good quality candidates and, and taking proactive stances to be able to, to do this and not making side deals like, you know, um, they, they tried in 2018 when Representative McLeod tried to, to make her district more democratic and Calvin Smyrie and Dewey McLean were also on that bill with her. And I look at the results from last night and she won her district by 60%. She didn't need any help to make her district more democratic. It was going to help out Chuck administration. We can't be making deals like that. And if we are smart, this is not going to be the wilderness for the next 10 years. Nabila, Josh mentioned Chuck administration. Uh, his 
district is is up there near where you are in in Gwinnett County, and and so are some of these other seats that could potentially be flipped. You know, Carolyn Bordeaux was successful in in narrowly flipping that area on the congressional level, but but those state house candidates still fell short. Any any additional insights from you on on what went wrong for for Democrats in the Georgia House on Tuesday? Uh, I think the Republicans really invested in their candidates. Uh, you know, Chuck Fistration raised about, I think, I want to say like $1.5 million for a House seat, uh, whereas Nikita Hemingway uh, raised around, you know, above 100K. Uh, but I mean, I, I feel like some of our House races lacked infrastructure around them, whether it was, you know, a professional team um, or uh, monetary support. So I honestly, I think that's, Really, what it came down to was, were they strategic about winning their seats? So I think Republicans were really good at investing in their candidates and, you know, making sure that they had enough money uh, to be competitive and hold on to their seats. Um, Not in a way that I think Democrats received that type of support. Um, On the congressional level, yes, people poured in millions, people poured in millions on the U.S. Senate level. That type of money didn't really exist at the local level. And I think that would have uh, really mattered and made a difference. I've got one more thing to say on that, that you reminded me of when you said what you just talked about, Nabila, that I think that the Democrats made a mistake on, um, as some, as I was involved in a lot of the races, and I saw a lot, a lot of the races we're working on, and I think overall, the Democrats didn't do, and I know there are a lot of people who disagree with me on this, didn't do enough negative campaigning. I think that there needed to be more, they needed to be more hard hitting on their opponents and they weren't, they were more about trying to tout themselves and make themselves look different. And I think that the the voters really needed to hear why they, they didn't need to focus on their opponents more. I mean, that's a good point. Cause you always have to give you the, you know, people a reason of why they need to fire this person that's been representing them for 10 years. Um, whereas, you know, you're this new human and they have just barely heard of you and you probably don't have the the money to do enough uh, saturation of the media market for people to you know really understand who you are. Um, I think uh, these can't some of these campaigns were just not run wholeheartedly, and uh, we saw the results of them on Tuesday or yesterday, where they unfortunately didn't win. I also think in this environment, the the COVID nineteen story really took over elections and, and people's political conscience this year. And you would have thought in a once in a generation pandemic, you know, once in, well, what's becoming once in a decade economic crisis, but, you know, a, a severe economic crisis that there would be a mood among voters to hold incumbents accountable for the situation that the state was in. And it was interesting across the board, there were actually very few flips, like most incumbents won re-election. And that was to the detriment of the Democrats, because they were the ones who needed to flip seats. But I just don't think that the case was made forcefully enough or, or connected well enough for voters that Republican inaction in Atlanta contributed to the severity of the crisis in this state. I mean, I don't know that voters know that Brian Kemp had expansive emergency powers that uh, he had at his disposal during this crisis, and he was criticized for his slow response and, and lack of response in, in a lot of different ways. A lot of those emergency powers were given to him in a large majority vote in the legislature. You know, he had to get those powers from the legislature. And 
Republicans, I think with the one lone exception of, of Chuck Evstration that I've talked about before, Republicans did not put any pressure on Governor Kemp or on leaders in the state to have a, a more aggressive or more comprehensive response to this pandemic. More often, they went out and they said, everything's fine. There's nothing we can do about the pandemic. It's it's up to you and your individual choices. And, and that's that. And I think that what when I've thought about some of the other states that have flipped recently, particularly in, in presidential years, I, I think of North Carolina and the fact that they, in 2016, elected a Democratic governor at the same time as they sent their electoral votes to to Trump in his first election. There was a unique local backlash to Governor McCrory in North Carolina over the transgender bathroom bill that they had at the time. And, and there was a lot of scrutiny put on state-level Republicans in their actions and and like Nabila said, you know, Democrats in those races, Roy Cooper, who's who's the governor who just won re-election in North Carolina, gave North Carolina voters a reason to fire Pat McCrory and, and elect him. And I just didn't get that sense from this campaign. I, you know, I very rarely heard that Republicans cut a billion dollars from education funding uh, during the middle of a pandemic instead of raising taxes on, on people who were wealthy. You know, you heard about Medicaid expansion, but that just seemed to get lost. And I don't know that that's the fault of the candidates. I mean, this is a totally unique environment, but it's, to me, it still stands as a, as a real missed opportunity in this political environment that they couldn't flip more seats. Sounds like you should be a consultant. <laughs> I would, I never know if my own instincts are right on these things though, because <laughs> Pretty right. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's all just mostly guesswork right now. Um, Josh, though, you seemed pretty optimistic about the state of redistricting. The one thing that I am concerned about in the current redistricting environment is, yes, Republicans after the, the 2010 election were able to draw maps. Those maps were still scrutinized under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. That was before the Shelby County decision. Um, they are not going to have to get pre-clearance for these maps under um, Section 5 of Section five of the Voting Rights Act, particularly if Democrats cannot win the U.S. Senate and, and put any of those requirements back into place, it's unlikely that they would end up mattering during this cycle of redistricting. Does that present any vulnerabilities in, in either of y'all's eyes as it comes to redistricting? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the fact that they don't have to go through any of that kind of, 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 of checking to see what they're doing is, is not hurting people is definitely there. But, but I, I think there is a price to be paid for that. If even without the section, you know, having to go through that preclearance, I think there is an argument to be made. And that's part of what I was mentioning earlier, like the Democrats have to be willing to really go after this and not not just hope for the best on, on, on the opportunities that are going to present themselves as they come up here, right? They're going to have to do something there. And I, I, and while they don't have to go through preclearance, there's, 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 there's other things that are going to, to affect how this, this happens. Um, but I think more than anything else, it's going to be the structural boundaries of the state and how it's all made up and the placement of the, of the, of the urban areas and where they're going to do that, that are going to cause them the most problem in this. We're going to have to use, every tool at our disposal and be aggressive and not just sit on our hands and take it. Um, we're going to have to be vocal and 
um, really just fight back against uh, some of the unfair redistricting that we will see. You know, and I, and I hope that you know we win the Senate and we're able to put uh, Section Five back into effect. Uh, but if that doesn't happen, um, we're just going to have to be, you know, super aggressive and and fight for what we know is rightfully ours. I also will say that I think that the Section Five protections are probably the best argument that one person can make that for the for getting rid of the filibuster. That's what it'll take in the situation. Is that I think for me that is the the key right there. So long as they're not having to make that case to to Mitch McConnell instead of Chuck Schumer. Um, yeah, I think Nabila, what you mentioned raises, I mean, the, the one tool that, that can't be taken away from Democrats is their ability to make a public argument. And, and I hope that, I mean, I don't know, this is again, where I don't know if my instincts are right, but to me, I don't know how much voters care in the abstract about fair maps and and where the lines are drawn, but where the maps are drawn it's going to help decide whether or not a hospital closes in your community. It's going to decide whether or not they fully fund the education formula next time around. I mean, those things have real consequences for real voters in this state. And and I hope that those things don't get overlooked when, when we have a public conversation about this. Um, let's move on to the, the congressional races here. The, I don't know which was more surprising. It was a narrow victory for Carolyn Bordeaux in the 7th Congressional District. That was one that I always thought would flip blue before the 6th Congressional District did. Um, On the other end of of the suburbs of Atlanta, uh, Lucy McBath won her re-election easily. Um, The power of incumbency seemed to shine through there for for Lucy McBath. Um, I don't know that there's much to say about these races, except maybe they're they're also vulnerable in redistricting. But but reactions to those uh, two Democratic victories in in the suburbs. What do you think, Nabila? Well, I uh, happened to run in one of them for 15 months as a former congressional candidate in the seventh district. Um, I at one point realized that you know this district was definitely going to flip blue, uh, and I thought it was going to be with a, a with a wider margin. Uh, I was very surprised it was as close as it was. Um, and I don't, I don't, I truly, and you know, not only that, this was the number one seat flip in the entire country. So for, you know, Carolyn to have only won it by less than two points is just pretty, it's really surprising. I'm, I'm interested to see why that happened the way it did. Um, and, you know, a lot of folks said that the seventh was going to be easier to flip than holding on to the sixth. And as we saw, um, Lucy McBath was able to handedly win her re-election. She resoundingly uh, defeated uh, Karen Handel yet again uh, and held on to her seat. Um, interestingly enough, I heard that Karen Handel uh, deleted her Facebook and Twitter, um, which I thought was very interesting. Um, so I guess that was her response to the defeat. Josh, what do you think about redistricting across these two seats? Any sense of whether it's possible for... Republicans to essentially claw one back by by redrawing the lines after this census? I think it's going to be exactly the other way, just the same reason why I said for this, for the state legislative things. I mean, if you're, there, there, there are definitely congressional seats that are missing voters, uh, or because I should say they're missing residents to make up their boundaries, be there right there. I mean, they're going to need more, 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 more residents in the 14th. They're going to need more residents in, in Loudermilk's district. And, you know, where do you take that from? Do you take it from another district? Do you take it from, or, or do you, do you want to go down to Atlanta? And I, I, I think there's a lot of egos and a lot of like, you know, stuff like that are going to go around that's going to affect how that happens. But 
I, I don't think the Republicans are able to draw themselves another seat in any way, shape, or form. I think it's probably the other way, more likely the other way around. Um, um, and then one thing I was going to say about that, that uh, you all mentioned on the, the other two races is that just like our state legislative races, I mean, we only, Carolyn is going to be one of two flips in the whole total, total country at this moment. I mean, there may be a couple more that, that happen once all the votes are counted, but that's a pretty small number that we flipped over to the Democratic side with what we thought was going to be a big, huge wave year. And, you know, I think that, that you know, it's, we can sit here all day and say what these legislative races did that didn't do, but there had to be, there's, there's a national mood that went over all of these districts, all over every state, everywhere it is. So let's talk about the the Senate races that are both going to end up in runoffs. The one that was expected to go to a runoff uh, is the, the seat held by Kelly Leffler. She beat Doug Collins, advanced to runoff, and she's going to take on Reverend Raphael Warnock. Nabila, Kelly Leffler was basically no holds barred with with Doug Collins that entire race. And you got to imagine that she is going to immediately turn to a negative message and and try to cast Warnock in in the worst possible light. At the same time, she may be running statewide in in a state that the Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden just won. Um, What do you think about how that race is going to look? So I think this is going to be a very competitive U.S. Senate election. Um, I think that's already a given. Um, I I think it's going to be a lot of mudslinging from both sides, Warnock and Loeffler. And look, she's the richest um, member in the U.S. Senate, I think actually in the entire, in in all all of Congress. And um, she's going to spend a lot of her money and and a lot of money from out of states probably is, is going to descend on this state and vice versa. So, um, I think as, as always, it is harder for Democrats in a runoff. Um, so, um, you know, Warnock has his, uh, work cut out for him, but he's not alone. Like we're all in it to make sure that all, all Democrats are in it to make sure that he, he's, he wins that seat. Josh, you know, did you do have more institutional knowledge on this podcast than, than either of us? So you probably remember Democratic struggles in, in runoffs in, in 2008 and, and even before that. How do Democrats motivate their voters to show up at the polls when this election is going to take place? It, it has huge stakes for the U.S. Senate, but it is after the main event, the presidential race will, God willing, will be over. Um, how do Democrats get their voters to, to come back to the polls? Well, I mean, I think it goes along with the idea that if I, I really wish I was a local TV station owner right now because there's going to be more money spent on these two combined Senate seats that are going to be for the, you know, for the opportunity to save our Senate. You know, that's just where we're going to be right here. It's there's so much money going to be there. There's going to be so much communication going on that like the thing is Democrats usually aren't motivated to go out to an election that's off cycle, but with this much going on, they're going to push everybody out. I think it will be similar to like kind of what happened in the Ossoff race and that special there where we had just huge, huge turnout. Now I know it wasn't favorable for, for Ossoff at that right there. I don't want to make that connection, but I think that's the, the key there. I also point out though, that like, I, 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 I don't know anybody. And I know it's, it's a small subject, subject group, but like, I feel like there's a lot of folks out there. Just Kelly Leffler does not excite Republicans. It's it, or anybody. I mean, she's not, she's not been around. There's no history here with Georgia. There's no one that's going to come out there. So I, I think she's going to have a problem 
getting folks like if Doug Collins had been the nominee on that side, I think it would have been a different race because I think a lot of people liked him. And I he already had a great general election ad that that ad with his daughter, which was my favorite ad of the cycle in Georgia. Um, but I just I I don't I don't know. Kelly's left for it. It's gonna be so much money. It doesn't matter who's how much money she has. There's gonna be so much out there that it's just gonna be incredible. Everyone's gonna know about it. Everyone's gonna be pushed to the polls. We're going to hate looking at our phones for all the text messages we get. We're gonna be not can't stand our email right now, and our phones ring out the door. And I guarantee I'll get 15 people knocking at my at my Democratic door here in Atlanta. So like it's gonna come out. I just don't think. And honestly, most of our votes central right here in Atlanta. So it's, it's not that hard to do um, and the field game of that. So um, I don't know. I know we have a bad history of it. I mean, Jim Martin lost it in that, that primary. And what was that? 2008, you know, um, yeah. that we had there. We got uh, shambles into the runoff. Same idea. Um, but I think that this is a different situation and I don't think it's comparable. So the thing that I'm also thinking about as we look forward to these races is is I noticed these two dynamics across across the two Senate races. You had what felt like was a coordinated campaign almost being run between John Ossoff and, and Reverend Raphael Warnock. They were very much on the same page on messaging, highlighting the same kinds of issues, doing media appearances together. On the other end of that race, you had candidates that I thought had different instincts about the electorate initially. Um, Kelly Leffler, obviously in that conservative slugfest with Doug Collins. They went with this maximum conservative strategy trying to gin up votes in, in the reddest parts of the state. David Perdue initially came out with a much more centrist instinct about the electorate. He spent a lot of time talking about how he would protect pre-existing conditions. You know, that was bullshit, but that was what he was saying. Uh, he also, you know, made all of these ads where he's, you know, speaking directly to camera, putting himself in the middle of it and not mentioning Donald Trump at all. Uh, This runoff is likely to take place in a state that Joe Biden has just won. And you have two Republican candidates that are now sort of de facto on a ticket together, but they appear to have different instincts about the electorate and about what's going to be successful for them. At the same time, their vote shares you know, matched up very closely to to President Trump's in in the results on on Tuesday. So I don't know. I'm interested in in the decisions that they're going to make about strategy and in where to position themselves, um, particularly if they think they have to appeal to an electorate that largely was not supportive of the president. I don't. What do you think about about that? Uh, about how that might play out? You know, I think it's going to be very interesting. You know, on the trail we saw. Ossoff and Warnock kind of have like a, a brotherhood going on and they were uh, in tandem. And when it came to messaging uh, and they worked really well together as partners, uh, whereas Loeffler and Purdue were just kind of, you didn't see that. Um, and if anything, I often forgot that there were two U.S. senators that were representing the same state. So I think it will be interesting because um, Loeffler has you know, attached herself so closely to the president and it looks like, you know, uh, Trump is going to lose the state. And so how does she pivot from that? Uh, and I'd be interesting to see how Purdue works with her, frankly, because he seems more of a institutional Republican where m- probably more of a Doug Collins type of guy uh, than he was, uh, um, you know, in favor of someone like Leffler. So 
Um, I don't know how much their friendship extends other than they both committed insider trading. Uh, but it'll be very interesting to see what the di- how the dynamic play- plays out in the next uh, few months. We should briefly note that they were both cleared by congressional investigations of any legal wrongdoing. But as is often the case with financial shenanigans, the true crime is actually what is legal. I am also looking forward to uh, season two of, of the buddy comedy with John Barack and the Reverend coming around the state for the next two months, because I'm sure you're likely to see President Obama, uh, probably Kamala Harris. I bet she'll be back. Joe Biden might even be back. Um, the whole world is going to descend on Georgia yet again. Yeah, it's a good place to own a TV station or hotel room. Um I, I, I'll be honest with you, I, I really have not paid a ton of attention to the Senate races this cycle because I've been so focused on the state level stuff. But, you know, I, I, I don't see the, the, the Purdue camp and the Leffler camp working together the way that the, the Democrat camps are probably going to work together on this right here. Um, they do have very different takes on things. And I, I, will st- I think it's going to, they're going to, I don't know. It's it's going to be very hard for leftward to make a a a, a right. Uh, sorry, leftward turn right now in her messaging away from Attila the Hun. I just I, just, I think it's going to be hard. She may try, but it's not so far back in people's minds that they're going to forget that that horrible, crazy ad that apparently worked. What is wrong with people? Why did that work? It was such a weird commercial. Is that is that what like maybe maybe we're weird and they like got something we didn't and uh, and that was like mem- I, I suppose it's memorable because we we keep talking about it so maybe that was what what it was. Um, I've actually heard that that phrase is like an inside joke in in conservative circles. I mean, to me, it still seems weird to make a campaign ad that's like an inside joke among the people who go to CPAC, but. I don't know. It, it did well, like still work. We're still talking about it. So, yeah. I mean, if that's, if that's an inside joke type of thing, like the, like, I like that, that, that press conference that Trump did a few weeks ago where he talked about a whole bunch of stuff that if you weren't a regular Fox news watcher, you had no idea what the words that he was putting phrases putting together meant, you know, if it was something like that, then I mean, it was, that was a strategy to make it past what this was for her, which was a primary, um, and she was tapping into those Trump voters. Um, but again, back to my original question, are they going to come back out and vote again without Trump on the ballot, especially if their their, their, their savior just lost badly in a bad way? And, you know, he's not going to leave peacefully. Oof. No, he is not. Did you see his uh, latest press conference? He said it was the election system's fault in Georgia that he was losing. And it's like, hey, it's run by a Republican. So the governor is a Republican, the Secretary of State is a Republican. It's just he's like trying to like he's he's grasping is what he's doing. He did claim that that the states that are still counting, they're all run by Democrats. And I believe Stacey Abrams would like a word with him. Um <laughs> Let's actually let's let's close with the presidential here and 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 let's start on that because in some ways I myself have gotten a little numb to what he says in press conferences. He did come out earlier on on Thursday evening into the White House briefing room um and he said that 
uh, he won this race easily. If you count the legal votes, um, he also argued that the polls being off were an effort to suppress his own voters by showing that Democrats were very likely to win everywhere. And that was meant to dampen Republican enthusiasm. I don't, I totally don't get the logic of that one. Um, you know, in some ways it's like kind of the same babbling bullshit that he's been doing for years, but he's also on the national stage commenting on uh, the most essential function to our democratic government and trying to undermine confidence in it. I guess in, in other ways, it's it's really alarming and, and something that, uh, you know, presidents of either party have, have not done in the past. Um, reactions to to his comments. Do you, do you find that more alarming or, or are you, are you numb to all things like I am? I mean, it was expected, right? I think even the Biden campaign set it up in a way it was like, Hey, you know, we're not going to have all the votes counted. It's probably gonna be a little chaotic. Just stay, stay with us now. Um, but he's just like, he just sounds so like, he sounds like he's a sociopath. Like he, he just, it's not, he's a broken record. So, um, it's just, so interesting to see this because we've been waiting for this moment for four years and it's happening right now, finally. And he's losing. Um, although it is very close, but I mean, he's been unpresidential since, since day one, but what I hate that what he's doing is he's created this narrative where, uh, Democrats are stealing votes, even though these were, um, legally cast, you know, mail-in ballots, uh, that should be counted. Um, and they're trying to make it look like it's a, it's a voter fraud. And so, um, that is a disservice to our democracy. And um, it is unfortunate that that is something he is sowing among, among his supporters. I have grown to a point where where I don't take him very seriously, but I do get more alarmed the more that you watch this trickle down into other parts of the party. And so actually watching him in the briefing room, I was reminded of about this time two years ago when on the eve of the governor's race in 2018, uh, Governor Kemp lied by claiming that Democrats were attempting to hack the state's voter registration system. Um, ultimately, Georgia's own attorney general, Republican Chris Carr, put out a report about 18 months later that said there was no basis for for Kemp's claim. Um, and at the time, Democrats said that that was a severe abuse of power because not only did he just, you know, he didn't like spout off in a a press conference about this, he launched a formal investigation and asked the FBI to look into state Democrats two days before an election. And he used his official power to do that. So it's, you know, when it when it's just this sort of like idle babbling from Trump in, in the press room, it, it feels a little comical, at the same time, a little alarming. But Republican officials have have learned from this and have instituted this in, in their own way of approaching elections. And you know, the deeper that goes within the party and the longer that goes without severe and uh, unquestionable punishment by voters, the more I worry about that becoming a, a facet of, of their electoral strategy moving forward, even if Trump is gone. Um, I actually am very frightened by what you just said. And that's 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 my fear. Like, I think Three days ago, I was when I was still hopeful about where the vote was going to be and, and nationwide, not just this this narrow vote we have now. I, I I really thought that the American people were going to repudiate the the autocratic nature of this president, and that the fact that they haven't and 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 so many of them doubled down on it 
has given me a lot of fear around that. And I think that that is very likely that the, the Republican Party is going to continue to try to use some of the same tactics and talking points going forward because that's what they're going to think is going to win them something right there. And what that does to us as a people and as an electorate and, and everything else, I don't, I, that, that I'm frightened by that. You know, it's, we've turned into a very, very, very siloed society and very, very partisan society and, and, and people aren't talking and, and, and it's, it's not a good place to be. And it's very scary that we've come to this place. And I didn't think we were going to get here. You know, I really didn't. I thought we were going to have a huge repudiation of this guy, and we just don't. Yeah, you know, uh, it was really disappointing. I think a lot of pundits were saying that Joe Biden was going to win by a landslide, and here we are. What is it, Thursday? I can't, I'm, I can't even keep track of the days anymore. Uh, where we're counting down the ballots one by one, uh, uh, looking at each, each of these states that are still remaining. Um you know, we are going to have to ask some hard questions about ourselves, um, and not, you know, and, and see why this is continuing to happen. Um, you know, a lot of folks thought maybe this was because we thought that Hillary was going to win in 2016 and people didn't vote. Uh, and we, a lot of folks were trying to, you know, go after that Republican vote as well. And as we saw, more Republicans voted for Donald Trump than they did in 2016. So, you know, the postmortem analysis is going to be very interesting. Um, and what does this mean going forward for, for our country? Um, we'll have to see. And, I, you know, with Trump out of the White House, I, I hope that Republicans come to their senses and this is no longer, uh, you know, Trump's party. They kind of, you know, recreate or go back to what they were before instead of what, what it's become. So um, I, I agree with Josh. We've become very, very polarized, and it doesn't feel like we're one country anymore. It's we're very divided. Um, and I, I want to see, as progressive as I am, like I, I, you know, I believe in bipartisanship. We need to have you know, friends across the aisle, uh, but you know, don't compromise on your values. But I, I, we, we, I don't think it's, it's very stark right now, and I, we, we're going to have to you know, amend that in the next years, decades to come. Well, I, I have, I'm really important to say this, and I really started to continue on this, but like for me, but one thing I want to say about what, what we've talked about right here is we, 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 this did not start with Trump. You know, I'm glad that the Lincoln Project helped out this time right now, but you know, and, and Nicole Wallace is a great contributor in MSNBC, but George Bush put gay marriage on the ballot in states across the country in order to turn out people based on hate. And that started a long time ago. This is not a new thing. This has been going on for a long time. You can go back further than that and talk about, you know, the Nixon Southern strategy. Hate has been a part of their party for a long time. Trump just took it to the nth level. One positive note I, I think we will be able to close on so that uh, we can sleep tonight is Democrats, as it as it stands now, it looks like Democrats are very likely to clear one uh, mental and emotional hurdle um, that they have not been able to clear in over a decade, and that is a Democrat will win a statewide vote in the state of Georgia if Joe Biden is ultimately able to pull this out. Um, I know we got to wrap up here in a second, but but any thoughts on uh, to close us out here on a Democrat finally being able to 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 break through that wall and and win statewide in this state? Oh, it's huge. It's it's 
it's it's it mean it's going to mean so much it already means so much seeing how close we are right now and um what that says about the south what that says about the state of georgia what that says about our future and um and how people think of us and invest in us and we're on the map uh we're not a purple state we will be a blue state and that is just an incredible thing uh, that's going to be for revitalizing democrats here in the state and, and across the country and believing that um we are we are competitive um, I think it's going to have a huge implication on statewide races in the next cycle. Um, there were a lot of outside groups that that played around in Georgia last cycle, but you know didn't see us as a as a real viable opportunity, and were shocked when Stacey got as close as she did in there in that race right there. And I think that, and, and from my own conversations, I know that a number of them have see Georgia in a different light even before today's you know before the past couple of days right now um and and this only makes it even more so that that's going to be the case um it's there's going to be a lot more attention played here there's going to be a lot more opportunity and we just got to make sure that we can keep the gains that we made in voters for this election and go through and i i, I continue to hope that there are a lot of republicans who are not going to come out anymore without trump on the ballot and i think one thing that's worth mentioning before we go is that this is really the culmination of a strategy from Stacey Abrams and other Democrats in this state who have argued now for eight or 10 years that the politics of this state needs to be reflective of all of the people who live here and not just the people who could be considered likely voters. And so she and others have set up and invested in organizations that have registered black and brown voters across this state. And not only did they do the work here, but she's also been barnstorming the country, arguing for investment in Georgia, arguing that Georgia is a flippable state, that it is a blue state, and that it, you know, people just need help to do that. And so Democrats may ultimately end up flipping this state in the presidential election, not because of severely depressed Republican turnout, but because of the investments in, in driving up Democratic turnout, and they still may be successful in flipping it, despite the fact that Donald Trump has driven up Republican turnout. And so I think they you know, deserve a lot of credit for the work that they've done in, in the way in which their strategy appears to have paid off or is at least going to put Democrats right at the brink if, if Joe Biden's not ultimately successful, although as we talk, things look pretty good for him. I think we'll we'll end there. We'll end on a high note. Um, this just a note for listeners: it, it's nine o'clock on Thursday night. The results here obviously could change slightly, but but hopefully they haven't changed in a way that that invalidates what we've been talking about for the last hour. Um, but you know, a little bit of, of positive news for Democrats, uh, but still a lot of tough questions to answer, particularly on the state level. Uh, Nabila Islam, thank you as always for joining the podcast. At th- pleasure. And Josh, thank you. It was great to have you back. Great. Thank you so much for having me again. All righty. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.